Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I'm Matt Larson, along with, as always, Cricket Lou. And today we have a very special guest on the podcast. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, uh, I am Dwayne Wessels, uh, former co-worker of Matt Larson. Yeah, and so Dwayne works at VeriSign, and this is actually your, well, it's, it's your second appearance on the podcast as a special guest. If we had had our act together, we would have looked back and I could have said, oh, you were on episode 25 or whatever it was, but I, we didn't do that. That's right. And then you've been on at least one of the uh, group podcasts that we did at the Inside Baseball events. Yes, I was at the most recent one. Yeah, and, and Dwayne, I believe, was, was he our first special guest? Yes. I think he's our only special guest, actually. <laughs> well, that's not true. We had our I'm, mystery special guest. Yeah, I'm the I'm the only one brave enough to use my real name on the <laughs> podcast, or foolhardy enough. <laughs> so uh, one of the reasons we asked Dwayne on, in addition to just Dwayne being Dwayne, we're always happy to talk to him. Uh, is recently we had um, there were some attacks on the root name server infrastructure. And Dwayne uh, wrote a public write-up and a, and a video. And I, I guess I just want to say off the bat, thank you for doing that. And thank mm-hmm. you especially to VeriSign for you know, making that uh, analysis public. Because I know that there's a great deal of curiosity always in the DNS community when something like this happens to critical infrastructure. People are always hungry for details. And it's, uh, it, it's great to get a little bit of visibility. So uh, I can understand you might be in a difficult position. I don't know what might be going on uh, in terms of VeriSign, if there are things you can say or can't say, but since you did release that public report on Circle ID in the video, you know, we thought maybe do you want to, can you talk about that or what, what, what can you tell us? Yes, yeah, so um, that, was, that was an interesting thing. I, I enjoyed working on that and I was um, you know, very happy that uh, VeriSign was able to publish something. Um, and also that you know the root server operators uh, published a report, which which you can see by going to uh, the rootservers.org website. Um, right. And you know if you if you read that uh, report, uh, if you read it carefully, you you would notice that uh, it it doesn't it, it goes out of its way to uh, not use the word attack because mm. you know we're not we're not actually convinced that it was. Uh, an intentional attack on the root server system. Well, and I note that your Circle ID post says it puts attack and it uses attack, but it puts it in quotation marks. Right, right, right. So um, that's you know that's sort of the position we that we took on that. Um, the the thing that uh, you know the blog post was nice, but uh, I was especially proud of of the video. There's a YouTube video, which uh, which you can you can see from the blog post. And that video kind of shows an analysis of the source addresses that we saw during that event. So I encourage everyone to go watch that um, and, and sort of draw your own conclusions, I guess. Yeah, and, and you get to witness a, f- a fascinating traversal of Hilbert space. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's one of my sort of... Uh, little favorite things ever since XKCD uh, sort mm-hmm. of showed the world how, how to do that. Um, I've written a number of programs that use that technique to visualize the address space. It's very cool. 
Yeah, that, yeah. that's all your own code to do that, right? Yes, the in the video uh, it uses a, a program that I wrote. Uh, it, it's sort of derived from an, an earlier program, which was derived from an even earlier program written by Roy Ahrens. Mm. And uh, Roy, uh, from, from Roy's program, I learned how to do some OpenGL programming, some visualization, and uh, it works very well. You can do some sort of real-time zooming and zooming out and pausing and, and all kinds of neat things. Yeah, very cool stuff. I, I was kind of surprised and, and pleased that the root operators uh, released uh, a joint document. I mean, I remember from my many years as part of that group, there was always concern, and I think rightly so, of doing too much as, as an organization because there really is no organization of the root server operators. There's just a, a gentleman's agreement that the operators get together periodically and discuss oper operational issues, but there's no uh, legal governing body or anything like that. So what? It, I, you see, you're, you're dispelling everyone's personal mythology of what actually happens behind the scenes. We, we pictured smoke-filled rooms and cigar smoking and scotch drinking and such. Well, there can be a smoke-filled room just without, <laughs> you know, a, a, a single organization. Right, right. Yeah, that was uh, that was interesting, and it was different from uh, the, pre the the last time that the root server operators uh, published a report like this. There was an attack many years ago. I think it was 2002, and uh, in that one, you would see that it has specific organizations as authors to that report, whereas. More recently, it was a sort of a collective report. Hmm. Right, and I recall that uh, back in O2, I want to say each organization, not everybody, but uh, a significant uh, percentage published the report on their own. That's right. So anyway, it's, it's really good to see the cooperation and uh, for the root operators to realize that, you know, that it's possible to do something like this. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, as long as we have you on the podcast, what else is going on? I know you've got some drafts cooking in the IETF around TCP, DNS over TCP. Yes, that's that's correct. Uh, I'm uh, co-authoring uh, two drafts uh, in the ITF uh, right now. One of them is in the uh, Deprive working group. That is a, a draft which um, really focuses more on TLS. Which, which of course you need you need TCP underneath, um, and the other one is an update to RFC fifty nine sixty six, which which that RFC describes how to do DNS over TCP, and uh, we felt that it needed to be updated and sort of strengthened in a number of places. So uh, both of those are ongoing. So can you talk about the TLS one? Yeah, so the, the, the TLS, the DNS over TLS document, um, you know, doing, doing DNS over, over TLS is, is pretty straightforward, right? You, you first establish a TCP connection, then you do a TLS handshake, and then at that point you can, you know, exchange DNS messages. Um, but a lot of the draft talks about uh, sort of things that you need to do to make it perform better. Mm. Right? So... That includes, for example, reusing the connection. Don't don't tear it down after the first response. Um, that includes uh, using things like maybe TCP fast open, or um, uh, the, the, the I'm blanking on the name of the, the the TLS feature. But there's a TLS feature which lets you uh, uh, you know reuse a, a connection from before. 
Um, so those kind of things can, can improve the performance of, of TLS. Duane, is the, uh, is the DNS message format otherwise unchanged over TLS? Yes. Um, the only, uh, of course, when you, when you do a DNS message over TCP, you have this two octet size prefix. Mm -hmm. uh, right. So that's, that's the same for TLS, but otherwise, um, yeah, it's exactly the same. Does the draft say anything about uh, authenticating the server or the client? Like what, what kind of, uh, what's the common name in the certificate or does it, does it even matter? So the, the draft does talk about that. Um, there are, we, we call these uh, usage profiles in this document and it describes two usage profiles. One of them we call opportunistic encryption. And when you do opportunistic encryption, uh, there's, there's really no validation. You're, you're, you're sort of just there kind of, um, you know, hoping for the best and assuming that uh, there's, there's no man in the middle, right? And, mm -hmm. and uh, it's sort of a best effort at encryption. Uh, the other usage profile is, is more strict. And rather than uh, basing it on, say, common names and the more traditional features of an X509 certificate, uh, what you do instead is you, you configure the client with a, uh, a, a hash of the server's uh, certificate or, or maybe the server's certificate authorities certificate. So this, this idea is taken from uh, an HTTP idea, which is HTTP uh, key pinning. Hmm. Right, so uh, in this way, you sort of you don't need to worry about uh, names or addresses in the certificate. All you need to know is that the, the certificate matches, its hash matches the one that you've been given uh, sort of out of band. So I'm sorry, I'm not quite following that. Can you maybe go into a little more detail about that? I can try. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's let's uh, you know that one of the use cases for this is like in an enterprise setting, and uh, you've got say a recursive DNS server for the enterprise, and you you configure it with an X509 certificate. Okay, so you uh, you can take a uh, cryptographic hash of that certificate, and store it as like a SHA-256, and you can distribute okay. that hash to the recursive clients. Okay. So when the when the client connects to the server, it receives their certificate in the TLS handshake, and then it can validate that the hash that it receives from the server matches the hash that it has stored on its disk. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a technique that's that's similar to one of the ways that uh, Dane works, isn't it? Yeah. Right. So Dane has a very similar uh, a way of doing things in, in one of the uh, in one of the options for Dane. Yeah. Yeah. So is there a standard, uh, uh, that, I guess standard's not the right word, uh, how you would configure the hash on the client then is implementation dependent? So uh, yeah, the, the, the document that describes this for HTTP uh, really defines the, the format that you would use uh, to store the hash. You know, basically you, you say this is a SHA-256 hash and then you have the, the uh, hex representation of that. Uh, it also describes how to calculate the hash over over what they call the subject key public info part of the uh, certificate. Hmm. And so it works around any of the the need for the client to know, for example, a list of CAs that it trusts. Right, right. 
the the hash uh, the, the or I should call it the pin set because I think that's what it's called in the document. Uh, one of these one of these pins can refer either to the uh, server certificate itself or to the CA that signs the uh, server certificate. Ah, okay, okay. So you can do it at either level. That's you can do it at either level, and you know if you do it if you do it one level up. That lets you change the service certificate from time to time uh, without having to update the, the pin. Mm -hmm. And that's likewise similar to how Dane works. Exactly, yeah. Yep, yeah. Cool. Hmm. Yeah, that's like, well, maybe we should go to the mailbag. It's, it's a little light this time, but there is, I do see something at the bottom of it. Yes. Well, we do, we, we, we do have a, a single, oh, hang on, mailbag. All right, mailbag. I, and, and as I told you guys before, I actually am looking through my physical mail here, but it consists this week of uh, a visa bill and, uh, let's see, Christmas card, uh, bank account statement, Verizon bill. Ah, but here we have a, uh, a letter from Mr. Robert Fleischman. And uh, we, we know Rob as one of the participants in our annual Inside Baseball uh, event where we get a bunch of DNS folk together. Um, but he sent us a question asking <clears throat> uh, about recursive name servers. He says, being a recursive name server developer and both of you having a great deal of experience in DNS and authoritative DNS in particular, what interesting data might authoritative servers be interested in getting from recursive servers? I, a few ideas. Last, best, worst, average round trip times to your authoritative IP address statistics on customers asking for names you host, counts per name or per zone, counts in total. And then he has a follow-up question, but I'll, I'll hold fire on that until we, uh, until we weigh in here. Yeah, so this is interesting and a, a follow-on to probably the most popular example of recursive servers annotating queries to authoritatives, and that would be EDNS client subnet, which Rob has done a lot of work on. Right, absolutely. And in fact, uh, I would I would imagine that his one of his recursive name server implementations is one of the foremost providers of EDNS client subnet information to authoritative name servers uh, at, at CDNs and and uh, other places that they consume that information. Yeah, the quick background on Rob is that he was CTO of a company called Zircol that built a high performance recursive server. It was much more to the platform than that, but for our purposes, that's you know what's relevant. Uh, and then uh, Zircol was acquired by Akamai about a year ago. So Akamai, I know, is, I don't think this is any secret, is in the business, of course, deploying Zircol's technology, which would make sense. Why else would you buy a recursive server company if you didn't intend to uh, deploy their code? So that's putting that's putting that server in even more places. It was already, they already had some very large carrier customers, but this mm -hmm. expands their footprint even more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it is it worth digressing to talk about what a zero call is? I did have to look it up. I didn't. I didn't know. Yeah, an an organism adapted for an extreme environment, I believe, nice. um, like a like a camel, <laughs> which indeed was the logo for zero call. That's right. I'm sure a camel is not the only the only example of a zero call. There are those those. Um, odd organisms that live down at, at very um, very hot points in the bottom of the ocean, right? Right. <laughs> All kinds of things like that. So, 
Um, so what do we think? Are there, are there interesting things that a recursive name server might transmit uh, to an authoritative name server? Well, let's list the things that we know are already being transmitted today. So there's EDNS client seven, of course. There's also uh, a, the server ID. What's the, it, it's, it might be the only other EDNS option defined, in fact. Well, well there's uh, message size, right? Oh, okay, I was thinking, yeah, of course, yeah, of course. That's, that's what EDNS zero was sort of invented for, or its first, its first big application. Yeah, I guess I was thinking of things that have that have required subsequent standards action to go as EDNS options. Mm -hmm. So anything else? Is that it? Boy, I don't well, know. Uh, yeah, I think in terms of what's actually deployed, you might be right. So this reminds me of, uh, or, or this, is, this is similar to something that I've been uh, proposing in the ITF, which is uh, in support of key rollovers, KSK rollovers, um, DNS clients, especially DNS validating clients, could transmit the key tags of their trust anchor to mm. authoritative name servers. So the reason you want to do this is because, uh, especially in, in the case of something like the root zone, uh, you, you really want to know uh, if you know the majority of the clients using that trust anchor have transitioned to a new one during a rollover. Mm -hmm. So you'd wait uh, to remove uh, an, an, an old key until you knew that no one else out there was still using it? Um, or, or probably not until no one or was using it. Or you at least know the impact never, of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, some, something like that. I mean, the, uh, the, the situation that we sort of find ourselves in with the root zone is is that when you do a key rollover, you know you use this RFC fifty eleven protocol, right? Um, but that that protocol it it doesn't have any feedback, and and there's 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 really nothing in the DNS yet that that and, and there's no way to sort of probe and, and and know when a validator has accepted and and is able to validate with a new key. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think this is a great idea. I think it would give visibility that, as you point out, we just absolutely don't have today because there, there are a lot of challenges involved with uh, rolling the, the root zone KSK. Uh, you know, chief, chief among them with 5011 is that if you've got devices that are off for a long time, which is you know, not uh, an inconceivable scenario, they could miss the announcement of the 5011 roll to say nothing of devices that simply don't support 5011 at all. Right, and you've got this sort of new world of of virtualization and containerization. So you have you have both container-based name servers and virtualized name servers that start up and die, and <laughs> nobody nobody may start them again for a long period of time. It's not like the the kind of old world of constantly running name servers always connected to the internet. Yeah, those those sorts of things are definitely concerns, and um, since this has never been done before, you know, there's a lot of question marks around this. Mm -hmm. Is um, I, I'm just curious. It seems like you'd have to have some sort of a threshold if you were a root name server operator and you were waiting until every uh, recursive that came and talked to you was asserting that it it knew about the new trust anchor. You'd wait forever, so you'd have to 
sooner or later, I think you just have to call it, right? And you'd have to say, all right, well, that's enough. 95, 99%, whatever. Yeah, I think that's that's true. Uh, you know, that's that's sort of um, you know that's outside the scope of, of the protocol. But uh, as as a consumer of that data, you would need to decide mm -hmm. uh, at what point uh, do you decide that it's okay to proceed. And you know, you may want to do something sort of sophisticated, like you know, weight those uh, those validators by you know how many queries they're sending, or whether mm -hmm. or not you think they are legitimate. Uh, recursive name servers versus, you know, people just uh, trying trying to be tricky and malicious or something like that. Right. And and deliberately prevent you from rolling over. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I just think the biggest thing is it gives you visibility into something where we essentially have zero visibility today. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I think that's great. Well, what if we go back to Rob's uh, list of ideas? These are really, really interesting. I mean, being quite interested in internet performance uh, because of my day job at Dyne, I'm I'm intrigued by the idea of the recursive sending uh, performance times, round, round trip times. That's quite interesting to me. And, and, and likewise, being a large authoritative server operator, uh, I think stats on popularity of, of names is also very interesting. So popularity of names like, uh, oh, you're my 573rd most looked up name or <laughs> well more like uh, queries per unit time mm -hmm. for a name being asked let's say so the name in the queue name field yeah sure why not i was going to say should it be the enclosing zone but why not have it specific to the to the queue name so then you could get a sense for the popularity of a given server it gives, it gives you the visibility that as authoritative server operators you know i've only ever been on on the authoritative side I have never really been, you know, from Rob's perspective, deep into it on the recursive side, but on the authoritative side, you know, there's this layer, as we all know, of recursive servers basically laundering everything, all the detail about the clients behind them. So that's why all this is very intriguing to me to get some, uh, get a look into a region that's been otherwise invisible. So right. all you know is that you, know, you can kind of read into, all right, based on a name's TTL and how often a recursive asks for it, uh, you can infer the popularity, but you know if your TTL is 30 seconds, and every 30 seconds a busy recursive is asking you for a particular name, then you can assume okay it must be popular because it, it they never let it time out of its cache. Mm -hmm. But you don't know beyond that. It would be interesting to have well how how popular is it? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, by popular, I mean how frequently is a query? That's my definition of yeah. popular. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be interesting to report cache hits from, from the recursive to the authoritative. Um, because as you say, right now we have a lot of assumptions about the way things work and, and they may not actually work that way. I mean, you know, something may get ejected from a cache for other reasons, restarts or uh, other policy choices or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think the, the policy end of it is, is mm, what's more interesting to me. Uh, we have the beginnings of that. We can, with uh, EDNS client subnet, report some information about the actual querier, but I think that there's a lot more potential to transmit other information about the querier uh, and to make uh, decisions with res respect to the response handed out based on those those things. Um, yeah, that would have to be that would have to be data you would learn out of band, right? Unless, uh, well, un unless the queriers themselves were 
annotating their queries with information about with more information about them. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I was thinking about that again. Uh, I think, like you, Matt, as 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 part of my day job, uh, I work for Infoblox, and and we have recursive name servers that sit in enterprise environments or or uh, other internal networks, and uh, as as part of being uh, uh, being a, a component of this DNS and DHCP and IPAM uh, uh, infrastructure, they have a lot of information. They they know a lot about a given client. They may know what. Uh, what client that is. They may know what user is on that client. Um, you may not want that data transmitted outside of the organization, but to have to allow uh, another authoritative name server inside the organization to make uh, a, to formulate a response based on that information. This is cricket on this uh, on this client, or this client is a, a Mac or an iOS device or what have you. That could be interesting too. And in fact, your saying that reminds me that. This is something that uh, Zeracol is already doing. They, they have their own private option, and one of their use cases is uh, content filtering. Mm -hmm. And they have code in certain CPE devices, because again, a lot of uh, carriers, cable providers, uh, organizations like that use them. And so if they're running Zeracol uh, CPE code, the the proxy, DNS proxy in that device adds an eDNS option with some identifier, I think it's based on the MAC address of the querying client, so that you can have per device policy in the recursive server. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly the, the idea um, that you could, you could start to make interesting policy-based decisions using, uh, using DNS. And, and that is exactly one of the things that uh, that Robin Zerokol did. So why is he asking us anyway? <laughs> well, I, I would hope it's because he uh, values our extensive experience and opinion. Are you sure that he's not just showing off? <laughs> <laughs> he's not just saying, we thought of all of this stuff before you guys. So to his, um, to his, one of his, his first suggestion, which was about uh, round trip times, you know, to that I would also add um, uh, things like timeouts and, and other failures that, that may occur. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's interesting because uh, that's certainly something that authoritatives don't have a lot of visibility into. Um, what kinds of, of failures recursives are experiencing when trying to communicate with that particular authoritative? Right. Well, actually, I was going to say, I, I, this is making me think that we've uh, overlooked a really obvious one, which is what about the recursives implementation? I'm bind 9.10.1 or whatever. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and or or maybe rather than a, a an explicit call out of of the implementation, it could be more a, a, an expression of your capabilities. Could, yep. Right, because that way, that way you wouldn't have to worry about remembering. Oh, okay, bind nine dot ten dot one supports this, but not that, and this, but not that. You could just say, oh, okay, he 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 gets this. I can I can send, for example. Uh, a uh, a raw dname record at him, and he'll understand that. Um, yeah, we'd need a registry of capabilities, and there'd be much arguing over what goes in it. But that's not the end <laughs> of the world. And you could translate it. Presumably, these could be. Well, it would depend, obviously, on how you did the registry. But if you did them as binary, either you know capability is supported, capability isn't supported, mm -hmm. then this is relatively compact information to send. Exactly. Exactly. But I'm but I'm having sort of uh, terrible visions of things like 
you know, JavaScript code that I've seen, which says, you know, if it's Internet Explorer version this, you can do this, and if it's Mozilla this, you can do that. Uh, boy, I think it would be terrible if we end up in that space with, with DNS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <That's> true. <laughs> yes, but where we are now is not a happy place either, which is you have to worry about lowest common denominator. I mean, Rob uh, can talk at length. In fact, he, he did in uh, the podcast from Inside Baseball about how difficult it is to do EDNS client subnet because of all the middle boxes in the way. And that's an example of, you know, without being able to, to probe and understand, you, you, you have to always do lowest common denominator. You, you can't, you have to assume the, the worst. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. We should, we should put in a plug for uh, Mark Andrews' work in, in sort of exposing a lot of these problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Well, one of the things that we shouldn't neglect is the follow-on question from Rob, which was, um, are any creative or interesting ideas on how to transfer this information to the authoritative name server? Um, my, first, my first thought was to do what I believe Rob and Zerocole already do, which is to use... Uh, EDNS, uh, in other words, encoded in an opt record sent from the recursive name server up to the authoritative. Do you, do you guys have other thoughts about that? Or does that make sense? No, I think you would have to. It would have to be another, probably not one more option, but various different option types because we're talking about different categories of information, and that's exactly one of the use cases for EDNS options. Uh, but I would think this would have to be like the rest of the DNS message, more binary data. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't. I don't think we can like you know put stick JSON in there or anything like that. Well, the the opt records format, if I remember correctly, I looked at this fairly recently. The opt record allows you to put sort of arbitrary um, key value pairs in the opt record. Isn't that right? Exactly. Like so, that's what EDNS client subnet is, mm -hmm. and that's what the uh, server ID is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so it really has. Uh, most of the functionality that you'd need to express a whole lot of different stuff coming from the uh, coming from that uh, recursive name server and trying to transmit that up to the authoritative. I, th I think it does. Uh, one question I have though is if it makes sense to do to sort of piggyback these on queries that you're going to send anyway, or if you would you know rather define some kind of new dummy query where you can. Uh, send something to the authoritative server sort of whenever you want to. Yeah. Well, it's, it seems that some things are easy to uh, piggyback. So, for example, if you're going to query the name server anyway about a particular domain name in a zone, you can transmit information about how popular uh, that domain name is or uh, count or what have you. But if what you want to express is... Um, hey, I'm having a real hard time hearing you, <laughs> or something like that, then I, you don't necessarily have anything to piggyback on. Or if you, uh, uh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's essentially it. Well, or you don't, you don't have to send it in every query, right? Maybe mm -hmm. you only send the performance information when you are having a problem or every, you know, nth query. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a very interesting idea. Yeah, well, thanks, Rob, for the question. I think in typical fashion, we've probably run this one into the ground. Why don't we stop before it gets, <laughs> before the pauses get too long. Kill it before it dies. <laughs> yeah. So we're recording this on uh, Saturday, November 19th, and uh, a very monumental event happened a couple of days ago.
Except oh. it's De- December 19th, Matt. What did I say? November 19th? Yeah. <laughs> oh. All right. The, mon- the, mon- the monumental release? Is that what you're thinking of? Yes. Ah, December 19th. Yes. Well, you can't. No spoilers, please, because I don't see it until tomorrow. Dwayne, you've seen it, right? I saw it last night with my family, yes. Yeah, I saw it yesterday afternoon with, with my kids. Uh, yeah, so no, no spoilers. That would be, uh, that would be unfortunate. But I, I will just say, in general terms, I think JJ did it. Yeah, yeah. What do you, what do you think, Dwayne? Yeah, I was, I was really uh, pleased with you know uh, the, the story and, and and the way it looked visually. I thought it was uh, really good. It, it felt so much like the three first ones yeah as opposed to it just it really makes you realize i mean i don't know about you but i i loathe the second three yeah yes you know they're just they're just <laughs> everything about them is is awful and and it just feels like th- this one just makes those a bad memory and it's like you know th- this should really be the fourth movie and we should forget <laughs> so he's so called four five and six <laughs> well it- J.J. has demonstrated himself to be a deft hand uh, at, at helming these these franchises. Although, I was talking yesterday to um, a friend of mine, Sat, and, and we were discussing the, the Star Trek reboots. And uh, one of the things that he said that I agree with is that they have kind of lost the spirit of Star Trek. What do you guys think about that? Well, J.J. likes his explosions and action sequences yeah yeah and uh, and, and you got to commend him for uh, for for directing movies that are are often very funny too really entertaining both exciting to watch and and amusing and I and from what I understand this one this one has its lighter moments too but I think I think sat's point I'm sure you guys get this is that the original uh, Star Trek, the original series, Star Trek: The Next Generation, and maybe to a lesser extent, the <laughs> the later lesser Star Treks, um, had had a different had a different theme. They were more like classic science fiction. They were taking sort of uh, modern day issues and setting them in the in the future so that we could examine them at a at a certain remove um, or see them highlighted uh, in a different way. And and the the rebooted J.J. Abrams Star Trek franchise does seem to be more about more about action, more about kinetics. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would agree with that. Action movies in space. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, so my son and I uh, have have on on Netflix. We've watched all of the Next Generation and uh, all of Deep Space Nine, mm-hmm. and uh, he is now interested in watching the original series, which surprises me a little bit. We've we started a few of them, and we'll see if it. If it holds up, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it'll be interesting to hear. You'll have to let us know, Dwayne, what he thinks, how he compares TNG to uh, the original series, and, and which one he prefers after all of that. Because, of course, I think all of us saw the original series. I, I didn't see it in its original run, but I saw it when I was young. Yeah, um, and then the next generation came out, and I saw that. And I think seeing them in that order kind of informs. Um, it informs my impressions of, of the, the two series. Um, but it'd be interesting to hear about uh, a kid from from our kid's generation seeing them in the opposite order. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I just want to say that I really enjoyed uh, watching Deep Space Nine, you know, from start to finish. I, I, I did watch it when it came out, but not sort of regularly and, you know, probably never more than once. So mm-hmm. it, it was really great to watch that all again. 
I, I just never quite got into Deep Space Nine, so I saw bits and pieces of it, and I think I watched it at the very end. So, like, there's a whole middle section of it that I'm missing, but that strikes me as a bit of a slog. It's four or five seasons, right? It's seven. Oh, oh my gosh! Okay. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I even I even watched I think most of Voyager and some of Enterprise. I'm not sure how much of Enterprise I saw. But yeah. I was that dedicated. All right. Shall I take us out? Sounds good. <laughs> As I guess Picard would say. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very, very much for tuning in. It's been our pleasure having you. Uh, as always, we'd love to hear from you. You can send your questions to Mr. DNS. That's M-R-D-N-S at ask-mrdns.com. And until next time, uh, and probably early next year, uh, goodbye from Cricket Lou and Matt. And Dwayne, thanks. <laughs>